0: It's After the Gig, episode 102, and today on the show I have the great Lauren Pritchard, a.k.a. Lolo. Lolo is a singer-songwriter, she was a Broadway performer, just an all-around incredibly talented person. Um, I had the pleasure of working with her back in the day when I was doing some uh, off-Broadway slash workshop stuff with uh, Dan Mills when he was... Adapting, well, him and a bunch of other people were adapting uh, an album that he wrote to a Broadway-ish or a musical. So back in the day, that's when I met Lauren and uh, quickly realized her talent and how incredible she was um, and is. To start it off, we start talking about the reunion that she did with the original cast of Spring Awakening, and she was in that original cast. So if you've ever seen that, on Broadway back when it came out Then you saw Lauren uh, And I thought it was incredibly interesting But I really loved having this conversation I'm not going to waste any time I'm here live at Daryl's House Club In Pauling, New York And I'm about to go on stage with Carbon Lee So I just want to say a quick hello You can email the podcast After the pod, at gmail.com Please remember to like and subscribe And do all that fun stuff um, Save the show on Spotify Whatever, share it whatever you gotta do just do it um please enjoy this conversation with the lovely lauren pritchard
1: Recently, did a uh, a reunion with Spring Awakening. What went into that? Why did the reunion happen? Was it just like something that the producers wanted to do? How how does something like that work when you get back into a show that you used to do?
2: So actually, the producers had nothing to do with it. Um, Jonathan, I what what literally happened? <laughs> what literally happened was I. Ha- Okay, so the the show opened on Broadway in December of 2000, December 10th, 2006. And for probably the last seven years, we, as in like the original cast people, uh, the original Broadway cast have been in a long time running group text. You know, we don't always talk all the time. Right. But- we text each other like on birthdays and holidays and this kind of shit, and and also on the yearly anniversary of the Broadway opening. Happy anniversary every year. So, in twenty twenty, when we were uh, wishing every each other uh, happy anniversary, Jonathan Groff, one of the guys who was in the show with me, was like because. Me and another one of our co-stars, Leah Michelle, had recently had babies mm-hmm. at that point. And Jonathan was like, Happy anniversary. By the way, these boys are gonna have to see their moms do the show one day. They're gonna have to see he's they're gonna have to see their moms do mom Who Bore Me one one day, which is a song from the show. So I had a dream, a literal dream, like went to sleep and had a dream dream a very vivid dream that we did the show we did like this one night only reunion show got everybody back together and did the show for just one night performed the whole thing one time and we did it as a fundraiser and we filmed it that was my dream wow. and so the next couple of days i text jonathan and i'm like hey i had this I had this dream that, like we did the show and why can't we do the show so i so it was also like right leading up to christmas getting right before christmas and so we were like okay let's get on the phone about this after the first of the year so like the second week of january 2021 last year um jonathan and i got on the phone and we just started talking about it and i was like you know it everybody else gets to do these kind of things. Like why other shows that have had a huge impact, like Rent or, you know, whatever, like have done similar things to this. Why, why can't we, who
3: Mm -hmm. says we can't?
2: So we, yeah, so we had this long conversation about it. And then the next conversation was like, who, who do we need to ask? What is the first step of making this happen? Because um, Jonathan and I were just gonna do it, so the first people that we had to reach out to um, were Duncan Sheik and Steven Sater, who are the scriptwriter and the, and the music writer, because they have the right. We they, we they have to literally approve the rights, you know, right. for us to do that kind of thing.
3: Right.
2: So that was where we started, and then from like the third week of January until Valentine's Day, we just diligently went step after step after step after step talking to, it was, you know, first Duncan and Steven, then it was Tom Hulse and Ira Pittleman who were our Broadway producers. Um, then we had a humongous, crazy Zoom call with all of the entire original cast. Which was wow. insane. It was like crazy. <laughs> um, I recorded the whole thing. It was wild. No, the the biggest thing that was so interesting and and really, ultimately, you know, um, maybe this is why. Maybe this I should have said as a precursor. You know, for me, Spring Awakening, and I I, I, I can say this, especially since I'm on the other side of the reunion and we have re- had to revisit everything and we, we all have spoken about this again. You know, for all of us, Spring Awakening continues to be this thing that – um not only means the world to us, but keeps showing up in our lives in ways over the years that Mm. is so interesting. So different than any, than than any other projects we've worked on. Interesting, And I think that's, I think that's because of the power of the, of the meaning of the show, Mm. the message of the show and we were all really, really young. I was a senior in high school when I started doing the show. You were a
1: senior in high school when I you was did a that senior.
2: show? Uh, I was, when I started, I was a senior in high school. Wow. And, mo- and most of us were somewhere around that age. Some were younger. Some. Jen Damiano was a freshman in high school when she started doing Spring Awakening. Wow. And she was in the original cast. She was a... She was an onstage ensemble member, meaning she sat in the chairs on stage, we had chairs on stage. She was one of the people who sat in the chairs on stage and then she understudied a bunch of the female roles. And she actually initially understudied the Venla character that has simulated sex on stage. And she was not allowed to do that per New York law. So they literally had to cha- change, cause she was 15 and you have to be 17 to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. They had to literally swap who she was understudying. So she then understudied me instead of Leah. Because of the age thing. So, and she was a freshman in high school.
1: That's unbelievable.
2: So we were all so young and, you know, it's not saying that like, we don't remember what happened or it was all a blur, but like it was a blur. We were so young and, and it was like zero to a hundred in the way that everything went. It was so fast and it was so, it was a whirlwind. And there is, I mean, I will openly say, there's a lot that I don't remember because half the time I was, I moved to New York City. I didn't live there. I moved to New York City to do the show. Um, you know, you're there, you're in this really successful thing that ultimately started out as absolutely nothing, you know? Right. It, it It is actually amazing to watch something go from literal nothing to really something. Flash forward to Jonathan and I having this conversation about being able to do the show one more time for all of us because I think we all needed it. Yeah. And now being on the other side of it all, we all did. It was like, we needed closure. We were all so young. and. The show closed, when the show closed, the show opened in 2000, December of 2006, the show closed in January of 2009 and it closed mostly as a byproduct of the fact that there was a financial crisis going on and people couldn't afford to buy Broadway tickets. There were some, there was something crazy, like 21 shows that closed in the, in the, from like January to like April of 2021. And the only shows that didn't close at that time were the shows that didn't, that were a, a well-oiled machine. It was like, uh, you know, Wicked and Phantom of the Opera and a couple other things like that.
3: The they staples. Survived.
2: And- yeah, yeah, they survived because they, I think they had just had enough cushion to survive. They'd been there a long time. I mean, Phantom of the Opera had been there, I think, 15 years at that point. So, um, So anyways... I think there were just a lot of things surrounding everything about the show that we all just needed some sin, some sincere closure on, and among other things. And so, you know, that was the interesting thing when we started calling everyone um, again and saying, "Let's do this show." Everybody said yes, which was That's so cool, fascinating. I found that to be fascinating. Nobody was like, ah, "I don't know." Everyone was like, "Great, sure, just let me know when to be there." And well, it
1: sounds like everyone had a pretty must have had a pretty positive experience when when you guys did it when you were so young. I mean that blows me away that uh, you know kids in high school are doing this super important thing, the super important show. It must have been so impressionable on all of you and and uh,
2: well for, complete, for you know. me you know I, I intended to go to college but I took a off-Broadway contract that turned into a massive show. And then I just never went to college. And I mean, I could have, I guess, in theory, I probably should have, but I didn't. I mean, from the minute I started working, I never stopped working. (laughs) Mm. And so I just kept working. Right. Right. Whether that's right or wrong, I don't know, but that's just was my reality. And why are you think you should have gone? Well, I just, you know, I believe in the importance of education. Right. <laughs> and even though I haven't gone to college, I've done other things too. I've, ta- I've taken some college class. You know how you can kind of take some college classes, even if you're not enrolled kind of thing. Like I've still done that. Yeah, of course. Um, because I believe in the value of education. I'm one yeah. of those. I was one of those people that woke up in the morning and was excited to go to school. <laughs> <laughs> um so and that I was that way growing up my whole life so yeah. um, I think that's where that comes from. I think there's there's a sense of uh at least for me there's a sense of like um peace of being able to have the freedom to educate myself. Um For sure, yeah. You know, yeah. but but and there were a handful of people who were super super young when they started doing the show, they took you know a few their college years they they went to college they took their college years and then came back to the industry um you know but for a lot of us like that was college you know that was our college experience for me it was it was three and a half years of college you're really thrown
1: thrown into it really
2: yeah ultimately it's like immersive college (laughs) Full immersion college.
1: And you're in New York City. Like you moved yeah. from Tennessee to to New York as a high school senior to to do a Broadway show. It's pretty remarkable. Do what? what was the the? Um... Well,
2: and the thing the thing that was crazy about it was like it wasn't a Broadway show at first. What it what, what my initial contract was a the final workshop, mm-hmm. which was. February to like um, first week of March in two thousand and six, and then there were there was a three week break, um, in which they fired a couple of people and recast people, which mm-hmm. was terrifying as well because we were all like, oh my god, are we gonna get the firing phone call? Ah! <laughs> I mean, seriously. Once we found out they were firing, people were like, shit, this is terrifying. Um,
1: That is scary. That's really scary.
2: And uh, and then in like April, we started rehearsing for Off-Broadway and then it was an Off-Broadway run at the Atlantic Theater Company. And the longest it could extend was basically until Labor Day. So, you know, that was my contract. And I was like, great, I'm going to go do this awesome thing in the summer. Great. It's going to be wonderful. Can't wait to see how fun it'll be. (laughs) you know i mean fucking i don't know i was like i mean i had grown up doing regional theater and like professional theater but i had never done like a brand new world premiere of a musical that no one's ever seen before like i had never gone through anything like that any type of professional theater i had performed was you know ultimately a remake of something that already was right so um how
1: long is the shelf life on a off Broadway run like that? Is it is it usually just like all right, we're doing this from from this month to this month, and it then whatever really, happens?
2: Truly, it depends on what like space you're in because there are theater spaces in the city where you can t- truly run oh o- totally open ended, which means as long as you're selling tickets, same as a Broadway show, as long as you're selling tickets. Uh, and you're paying for your for this for the theater space. They will let you run forever, ultimately, in theory. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have then you have theaters like the Atlantic Theater where they curate a season, and they do. I don't know. I think they do something like eight shows a season, six shows a season. I I honestly can't remember what it is, but though in each of those shows gets a designated period of time, it's usually, at the very most, six weeks. Mm -hmm. So, um, but it's anywhere from between three to six weeks, maybe nine weeks at the most. But when you're curating a season and you're trying to fit in all these other shows, things literally cannot overlap. Past, you know, whatever their time is. So when you're working with a company like the Atlantic Theater, It is strictly everything they're doing is strictly limited engagement. Gotcha. gotcha. And, um, but it's not always that way. It just totally depends on where you're actually doing the show. It's
1: like, that's where they start from, you know, or that, that kind of thing.
2: Well, I mean, there. David Mamet, for example, um, has put on an incredible number of his plays at the Atlantic. Like they have world premiered there and they have never played anywhere else that's where they lived. They lived limited engagement. You know, they might be, they might be sort of done in other places, but as far as the actual true first production, a lot of them happened at the Atlantic. They happened that one time for whatever it was, six weeks, eight weeks, whatever the designated time was, and that's it. Never happened again. Gotcha. So it, it's, it really, you know, again, it's all of it's very arbitrary. I Mm -hmm. I think that's maybe a thing that a lot of people don't realize about commercial theater in that way i
1: definitely didn't realize that for sure
2: i mean commercial theater is very strange in the fact that yes in a lot of ways there are there is a template sure kind okay. of meaning like sure yes n- maybe this is how you need to do this one thing or this is the this is the normal way you go about this whatever but But ultimately, you know, there are a lot of things that go down in the world of decision making and how things happen in the world of commercial theater. That's just totally arbitrary. But when you're dealing with a company like the Atlantic Theater Company or the Public Theater that have these very reputable theater programs Mm -hmm. and seasons that they have – thousands of subscribers to, like literal ticket subscribers to, to their seasons each year.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, you know, they're curating on a different level.
1: Yeah. Again, you can move things in, move things out.
2: Right. And and it's still completely arbitrary and specific to their things. You know, I mean, they, they each, just using those two companies as examples, you know, they each have things that they will or won't do, but they are, or are not interested in you know uh producing or doing or whatever um but yeah overall it's incredibly arbitrary
1: that's interesting was there a specific moment or like memory that you have when you found out that it was it was going to move to broadway or did it work like that did you kind of did everyone feel that it was moving like that
3: Well, we
2: didn't really honestly know what was going on, but we knew that every single performance was completely sold out. And we had gotten this miraculous New York times review, which was in our favor. And that wasn't happening to anyone at the moment. It was just like, everybody was getting absolutely dogged by the time. So the fact that we somehow managed to, uh, survive that was amazing too. Um, and the producers had you know, called us all into the theater. They had asked us all to come in early, um, like the first time, come in early and come into the theater. They had something to tell us. That was the first time they told us that we were extending the off-Broadway run.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: We basically had two options to extend. So they pull us into the room and they tell us we're extending. We're ecstatic because we love doing the show. We don't want to stop doing the show. Right. Um. And then they pull us into a room again until uh, on the next wave you're extending. We're like, this is amazing. Wonderful. Again. <laughs> yeah. And then they were like, we need to have, you know, a meeting. And I think maybe for a lot of us, we just kind of assumed, well, maybe they're trying to just have a meeting about, you know, when the show closes, what are the next steps? kind of thing. I mean, I think that's really all that I expected.
1: Right. At this point, it had been going on for what like 3 almost 3 months or so. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And and even though we had a lot of people around us being like this show's going to Broadway, this show's going to Broadway. I think for a lot of us like we didn't really we couldn't even really like fathom what that truly meant, you know. No. What what actually went into that? There's little... so
1: many moving parts.
2: <laughs> I mean, it's it, it's it's I mean especially now being on the other side of it composing musicals myself and 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 then also, you know, putting together the 15th anniversary reunion. I mean I say this with love and respect. I would never want to be a Broadway producer. <laughs> it's brutal. Mm. Because the fail rate is insane. Right you have like an 85% fail rate, which basically means you're going to pour shit tons of money into a thing that's probably not going to succeed and not going to run very long. You might as well light that money on fire. <laughs> it's pretty tough, Honestly, like, seriously, it's a pretty fucked situation.
3: Yeah.
2: But when you're a creative person and you're so there, you know, you're not, you're not, you're, uh, it's not that you're not thinking about the risk, but you just have to be focused on what the reward is. and It's like and the it work in the art believe, form. Yeah, you have to believe that it is, you know, worth worth fighting for. Because if you don't, it's not it's it's not going to survive, period. You know, right. it's not even going to survive a little while, let alone right. a long time, if you're not willing to put that risk in there. And so, you know, ultimately... I just think the thing that was the most interesting about the the finding out about going to Broadway was like, they literally brought us into the theater at the Atlantic and sat us all down. And we were all like a little confused cause we were like, well, we know we can't extend anymore or maybe we can or whatever. They told us we were going to Broadway and we were all so ecstatic. And then literally like, this was like before the show that we had to perform that night. And uh, and then we're all like in the dressing room because we all had this massive shared dressing room that had literally just a curtain in the middle of it,
3: mm-hmm.
2: separating boy side, girl side. Mm-hmm. And you know, and we were all like, "We're so happy we're going to Broadway." What does that mean?
1: <laughs> now what?
2: <laughs> what? Yeah. You know, so it's it was. It was a funny thing looking back on it. And so, you know, flash forward 15 years later to putting together this reunion show. I think that, like, I just think everybody genuinely needed to decompress again. Mm -hmm. Because I don't know that we ever really got a chance. Like, everybody just, we did the show. And then when each of us left after our contracts were done, some of us renewed. Some of us didn't. You know, and as we all left the show and then as the show closed, it was just like, Somewhere between the feeling of like the one that got away, or like if if someone dies really young, I know that (laughs) sounds very like fucking weird, but but it was such an enormous part of our lot, each of our lives. Right. It's like what now? What now? Yeah, I mean, it was it was such a huge identifier, even in a way if we didn't want it to be, it didn't matter. You know, when you're a part of something that's larger than the sum of its parts, that's what happens. And that show is one of those things. You My know, it, it's not any different than um the folks who were in rent. You know, that show is larger than the sum of its parts. That show is larger than Anthony Rapp and and the and Adam Pascal and Adina Menzel and Tay Diggs and all of these amazing people that came out of it, but that show is still larger than all of those people mm-hmm. combined. And Spring Awakening is the same thing; it's it's much larger than the sum of its parts. And I don't know that you ever untether. Like I don't know you that you ever un, really untether from that. Um, mm.
1: You took it all the way to the end, right?
2: no i didn't renew my contract you did i left i left in february of 08 my contract was from december of 06 to february of 08 and i left in in february and i didn't renew because um i wasn't enjoying myself anymore Mm. quite honestly some of that had to do with john gallagher who my character really had a lot of her main scenes and everything with. Johnny had left three months before I left and completely no disrespect to the person who took over for him, but he wasn't Johnny. Right. And it was really hard to do the show. I mean, I had done the show with John at that point for two fucking years. And it, and I was like, I am not interested in doing this. And it was truly nothing personal to, to the other person. I just... That was just where I was at. I built this. I built this with someone else. And I think it's time for me to move on. Mm-hmm. And and ultimately I moved on because I was just like, I don't ever want to get to a place where this feels like work mm-hmm. because this entire thing has been a dream. And I mean a literal, like just what the fuck is going on dream, you know? Right. So, um,
1: So that sounds like it it was a pretty timely decision, like you Mm -hmm. you were expecting to make that decision. So did you have any plans going forward? Uh, Did you know what you wanted to do? Did you have plans? Did you want to go to another show or anything like that?
2: So that was the other thing. I mean, I knew I wasn't going to keep doing Broadway. I had signed a record deal and a publishing deal at that point, and I was already... Recording and doing all those things, and I was in the pos- it, and I was in the process of transitioning to move to England. So,
1: gotcha, yeah.
2: You know, I had things I already had things I already knew what was going on next. Um, maybe I would have stayed longer if I didn't know.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But you know, ultimately, I guess specifically for me, the thing about the Spring Awakening part of my journey, um. You know is i grew up doing professional theater from the time i was really young it was my first passion and focus yeah. um you know but once i started writing music and and understanding that oh you can do that for a living and i was around like 14 when i yeah. re- when it really like truly clicked like oh yeah these people that i list this music i listen to these people create this music that is what they do you know it really finally registered with me and it was like oh okay yeah that's what i'm gonna do
1: yeah were Uh, you natural were you naturally drawn to it just super early or did you have an influence oh yeah
2: i mean i started truly on my own because i don't have there's not like musicians in my family okay in any regard i'm the only person who can play a musical instrument in like my entire family. And I'm not just talking about my immediate family. I'm right. talking my fucking extent, deeply extended family. I have a handful of cousins who can sort of fiddle around on a guitar, but mm-hmm. I am the only person that can do that in, in any capacity.
1: Your family so it was due there for was it. No,
2: <laughs> Sure. There, but, but I say that to mean like there was no, Uh, my parents loved music. We listened to a lot of music. Music was a humongous part of our life, Yeah. but not, but as a listener and as an appreciator of the form of the art form, like my dad was, my dad's a numbers person and he was always, he would buy cause each year back in the day, billboard would put out the, like, uh, they would put out a book of like the facts of the records of the year. Yeah, and be you know basically a, a volume from that year's top hits, the things that went into them, the sort of the 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 breakdowns of the different charts. And my dad was always so into that, so there was always a lot of like that kind of stuff going on. But like as far as like literally sitting down and creating music, that wasn't going on around me anywhere. That was just something I started doing really, really young. I actually started writing. I I started taking piano lessons when I was six. I started writing piano compositions when I was eight. And Mm -hmm. my, they weren't crazy advanced, but I was writing them. And my piano teacher was helping me transcribe them. And then I sort of realized, oh, okay, so I just take like, this music that I'm creating and I can put a melody to it and I can write a song, like I can write, this is how a song gets written.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: I s- just sort of started doing it. It happened in a very, very natural way. I think I wrote my first real, real what, what I would consider like an actual song I wrote when I was like 14. But yeah. I was writing song-like things as early as 10. Things where I was, you know, taking little, they were probably a lot more like limericks or lullabies or, you know, they were little kind of fractions of melodies and these kinds of things.
1: Yeah. I'm always, Um, I'm just always fascinated how, how, you know, people that are as immensely talented as you are, um, how they turn their natural... Talent, obviously, you had a natural draw to it. Like this was, you you almost didn't have an option. (laughs) Like it, it was like
2: probably. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, I'm sure. Oh, but um, I'm always fascinated where the natural talent goes, and then when, like, you as a person makes the decision, like, oh, yeah, this this is for real, and I'm gonna I'm gonna like put in this the work and the energy that it takes to to go far.
2: Well. At the time when I was doing Spring Awakening, one of, well, not just when I was doing the show, but kind of as I was at when everything began, when I was first doing the workshops and the off-Broadway stuff, not just by the time we got to Broadway. I had been in LA for a little while because I wanted to go there and songwrite. And yeah. my parents let me because I had been in Nashville at that point for two years when I was... 14 and 15. You had a couple of friends around here in Tennessee that were like, had friends who were songwriters in Nashville and I could go be a fly on the wall kind of thing.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So I was going up there. I was writing in Nashville. Nashville was a really different place 20 years ago. Oh yeah. That's all that's all I'll say about it. It was a very different place 20 years ago. And so I really wanted to go to California and my parents let me because I was doing the work. Ultimately I was proving myself in the fact that this was what I wanted to do. And so I, I went and made a few demos, worked with, you know, a few people kind of thing. And then, you know, when I got cast in spring awakening, it's funny because, you know, I was, I did have an agent and the agent did give me the audition, but I was like, I'm a singer songwriter. I'm not an actress, you know? Mm. And, um, when Duncan Sheik, when you know, when I started working, when I was cast in the show and started working on the show, Duncan really took me under his wing. And he actually helped me re-record a couple of demos to then be able to send to people, kind of thing, to aid in me getting a publishing deal and those kinds of things. And what I will say about that is, you know. As a young lady in a very different climate, fifteen years ago was a very different climate all the way around for young women. And to have a person, it's one—it's certainly one thing to believe in yourself, and that's the most important place to start. Obviously, if you don't have the self-belief,
1: what are you doing? It's
2: going to be a really long road. (laughs) (laughs) No. Um, But to have anyone else, to have anyone who has had any form of success in the actual music industry, which, I mean, Duncan has had, and at that point he was, you know, a Grammy-nominated, had toured the world and put out very successful records and had, had massive hit songs kind of thing, he could be objective enough to say, I think you can make it in the industry, which is what he said to me. I think you're absolutely good enough to do this. I think you can make it in this industry if you want to do it. If you want to actually do it, you can do this.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, to, and so to have that kind of support and validation was very, it made it very easy for me to say, I'm leaving this and I'm going to do this. You know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, that makes perfect sense.
2: It it made it very easy mentally for me to go. I okay, I can't I knew I could, but sometimes you need that extra person or thing or whatever it is.
1: Need the push, yeah.
2: Yeah, to come in and just give you that extra little bit of validation to really push you over the edge. So that's why, you know, leaving the show and I had a publishing deal and I had a record deal. And I was like, I don't, I don't know what the hell is going to happen. You know, I don't, I don't know what the outcome is, but I certainly will never know if I don't find out. Yeah. You know, if I never try.
1: And were you looking to be, to be, you know, obviously you're an artist, but like, were you looking to be your, uh, just a songwriter and work with other people? Or were you looking to have records and go out and do your thing as your own artist? You know,
2: I knew that I wanted to do both. I knew that in order for me to be mentally healthy creatively, I knew that I was going to need to make my own records, too. You know, but, like, my heroes, my true heroes have always been people like Carole King and Linda Perry, who another person who who is a dear friend but who I think has had an unbelievable career is Butch Walker. People who can write amazing beautiful songs for others and yet still have a meaningful artistry of their own. Right. Um and that's really where my frame of mind has always been about it. You know sparking I mean, that I, balance. Yeah. I mean I think like Sia is another, you know, example of a person that can write really beautiful songs for others and still have a really meaningful artistry of her own. And they really don't even necessarily have to intersect in any way, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, But I think for the mental health of the creative person, that is why they need to exist. So it's why it's, it is why I've always had, you know, my finger in lots of different pies, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm always creating shit. And there are days where I create something and I'm like, this is just a random fucking song that I needed to write. I don't ever think it's going to like see the light of day, you know, but I just needed to get it out of my system Then I'll write something and I'll be like, Oh my God, I think this would be awesome for this. Or, you know, sometimes I'm writing specifically for the musicals I'm working on and sometimes that's really, really easy. And sometimes it's really not, you know, it's, it's, the thing about creating is that you you really don't know what you're going to get until you get something, mm-hmm. at least something. And then you have to figure out what you're going to turn it into and where it belongs. And sometimes you might think it might belong in one place and then it belongs somewhere else, ends up somewhere else entirely.
1: How do you treat writing like when you when you're going to sit down and create something? Does there have to be some kind of... I think you already just answered this question, but I was going to ask if there has to be some kind of deadline or purpose for it. Um, but it seems though that it's like whenever it sparks, you got to kind of, you know, catch that lightning in a bottle when when it does. But do you, I know a lot of people will focus on getting up at treating it as if they're going into the office, you know, getting up at six or seven and you know, getting their workout in and then going and sit down at the desk with the guitar and writing some songs, you know, and, uh, and just, you know, putting the pen to the paper and just seeing what happens. Um, and other people are more, I gotta, I gotta do it when it, when it, you know, sparks, when something happens, you know, if a melody comes into your head, you take out your, your voice memos and sing it into your phone. Like I have thousands of those into my phone that have never become anything, but it's just like, oh. I got, I got to get this right now, you know, that feeling.
2: So one of the first people that I had the pleasure of spending a lot of time writing with is a guy named Egg White. He's based in the UK. Okay. And he and I made my first record together. Um, that record's called Wasted in Jackson. It came out in 2010. Um, and he literally went everywhere. He had this rickety... <laughs> little like tape literal tape recorder it was oh, like yeah. this big old school and he had it on a lanyard around his neck and he wore it i mean like the man never took it off i think he took it off literally in the shower cuz he had to but <laughs> that was i mean he wore it all the time and he was a he is a wildly successful songwriter and he would bicycle everywhere take his girls to and from school and he'd be, you know, like on his bike coming home from the grocery store with groceries in his basket on the back of his bike. And you can hear like the wind like <laughs> in the background and the <laughs> he's like humming melodies. And, you know, I had I had the opportunity to work with him a lot. We spent about a year together making a record. And that this was like right after I left Spring Awakening. Yeah. And being able to understand the importance of capturing the spark was very helpful because like I knew that already sort of and I would I had my own way of kind of doing that too but to see it on that extreme level was actually really helpful Mm -hmm. um and the the other thing for me is Yes, there are times where I have deadlines and I just have to bite the fucking bullet and get the work done. Not every moment is like some mystical fairy moment, but but 90 I would venture to say I personally feel 90% of what I end up creating I feel has been tethered to me from the beyond. Like Interesting. Dropped into my head somehow from something else because The way that that shit comes together is far too um, mysterious and profound, far beyond my actual understanding of how songs actually get written. I know that sounds real witchy and ridiculous, but (laughs) there are times where I have written- It doesn't. It doesn't. There are times where I've written really amazing songs in 10 minutes or less. And I'm talking, I sat down at the piano or the guitar and I sang it, i sang it like i sang it completely down and that was the song and there's no explanation for that whatsoever Mm -hmm. i have no explanation for that
1: well i feel like there's so there's so many of those stories with artists that that you know they either you know you the famous story from paul mccartney that he he yesterday came to him in a dream and then he got up and and uh and wrote it as first as scrambled eggs and then and then it became yesterday but um that those moments are incredible like uh liam gallagher uh, you know i was a huge oasis fan growing Mm -hmm. up and he always talks about the song songbird how you know it's two chords it's g to e back to g and then he always talks about how he's just sitting by a tree and it just came to him one day and he wrote it in literally five five minutes
3: yeah
2: yeah. And
1: it's one of my favorite songs by them. It's it's a lesser known song, but it's. I uh, know that
2: song. it's a great song.
1: And I love that song. It's uh, it's it's so interesting how how it happens, how it happens for different people at different times of the day, and uh, and, and and everybody what-
2: has a different process. Like some people, they don't like to write quickly. They need to write really, really long form.
3: Mm-hmm. They
2: need they need time to digest and understand and um they'll revisit they'll rework they'll go back they'll edit you know i i the thing about creating is that and i and i guess in my opinion why i've always found it to be hard to you know sometimes create things like award shows for mm-hmm. creating is that there's no again it's all arbitrary there's no explanation for it. There's no reason for it. Un- like, until something exists that becomes something that people care about, there is nothing.
1: It doesn't exist.
2: It doesn't exist. That to me is, I think, maybe the most fascinating part of the industry, period. And not just, not just the music industry, the the entertainment industry across the board, whether that's art or dance or music or film, TV, theater, whatever, you know, you're literally creating something out of nothing. And, you know, again, like the spring awakening thing, or really like any of the records I've made, when you create something where there was once absolutely nothing and then people choose to purchase it or care about it or learn it or listen to it or watch it or see it or pay for it or hang it on their wall or, you know, I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary compliment yeah. because of course. it's never existed. So yeah. why yeah. should literally anyone give a fuck? <laughs> <laughs> I know that sounds ridiculous, but. No, but you're
1: you're creating. I've
2: always, that's how I've always felt about it. I mean, I think of, I think of the success, um, the songwriting success I've had writing for the band panic at the disco.
1: I was going to ask, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, for sure.
2: You know, that again, that that's a prime example of, you know, you're working on stuff, but you, nobody, even in the bed, I mean. I think unless you're like Taylor Swift or Justin B at the moment, if you're unless you're like Taylor Swift or Justin Bieber, Ed Sheeran, John Mayer, Rihanna, you know, there's a handful of people. Um Lil Nas X, he seems pretty locked into where he's at. Cardi mm-hmm. B. You know, there's a handful of people that like they just have such a massive following right now, Liz Stratosphere. Who, Yeah, like that even if they put out something that's not very good, it's still going to make some traction, you know, but but even then. You can't actually like predict what's going to happen. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like Justin Bieber never could have foreseen what was going to happen with Despacito. There's no way. There's no way you cannot. No one can actually. You can listen to any song and be like, this is a great song. I'm sure it'll be fine. You yeah. know, but no one you can't you literally nobody, not even the greatest most informed whoever you think that person might be can predict what is or isn't going to be the most successful thing in the world or the greatest failure in the world, right. you know? Right.
1: Cuz it's subjective. Like you're you're like you said, you're creating something for nothing and you're trying to connect with people via emotion and the human experience. So it's like, whatever's happening in the time and whatever's happening with the song in, in the lyrics and how it connects with the masses or, or, or a small audience or, or a particular demographic, then it's, you know, those things all come into play and it's completely random. (laughs) It could change from week to week. So.
2: I mean, death of a bachelor, um, the album. I wrote that song truly for Brendan and, you know, but I mean, I had no idea that they were going to choose it as the title of the album. I was floored when I found Mm. that out. And I mean, I had written a few other songs in the record too. I was floored when I found that out. The fucking album was nominated for a Grammy. When I wrote that song, I, I cannot stress enough. There you could have told me every day till the day it happened that that shit was going to get nominated for a Grammy and I would have been like fuck off. <laughs> There's no and that's not because I don't think it's good, but like what? There do you know how much new music comes out all the time? Do you know how many bands there are? Do you know how many fucking things are out in the world? So, you know,
1: what year did that song again, come out? Again.
2: Um what year did that song come out? I'll
1: look it out. 2016. Got it. I
2: think it came out, yeah, in 2016. But we were in, it was in the, it was, yeah, it would have been the Grammys of 2017. Gotcha. So it would have been like February of 2017 that the actual Grammys went down. Right. It was like December of 2016 when the nominations came out. Um, you know, but. And again, that's not to say that I think the work is shit. That has nothing to do with it.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It's like the the the, um, the the amount of volume that exists in the industry now is insane. Staggering. So to be considered in any capacity is insane, you know.
1: Well, they and, were I mean that time period, they the I mean they're a huge band. Still a huge band, you know. I it's it's they're a great band. I loved it when they when they came out. I'm wondering what the connection was between you and and, and the band and how that all how you guys met, how it happened, how you got to songwriting we, with them.
2: We had similar management at the time,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and um, which is how we were introduced. Our managers were had been working on some projects together, and we mm-hmm. ended up uh working together. We ended up meeting. Brandon and I ended up meeting. Um and then um the same person that made Death of a Bachelor same producer uh that made death, the Death of a Bachelor record also made my record in Loving Memory of when I gave a shit. Gotcha. So he produced both of our records. So we like our similar managers kind of introduced us all. Right. Right. And then we just kind of went forth and created.
1: Nice. Awesome. Yeah. He was on, Brandon was on one of my favorite podcasts. Uh, it's probably a year and a half ago. He was on mm-hmm. your mom's, your mom's house podcast.
3: Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it was really funny.
3: Yeah. <laughs> he is yeah. Funny. He's a cool He's a guy. Funny guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Nice. Um, what was I going to say? So now you wrote, you're writing with them, you're working on a new podcast. Um, what what made you go and what are your goals for the musicals that you're working on and writing are you is that a collaborative effort or is it something that you've kind of dreamed dream of doing or what, what do you see for that
2: totally something i've always dreamed of doing one of my musicals um songbird has had the most success we it ran off broadway and it was a new york times critics pick and we're still in the process of um, working on that show and the ultimate goal would be to put it on Broadway. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're, you know, still in the pipeline for that, but it's a long journey.
1: Yeah.
2: That Um, and COVID did not help any of that, honestly. Um, We are, and then the other musicals I'm working on, I mean, ultimately, I guess the short answer would be, I've always wanted to create musicals. Um, it is a complete collaborative experience because I don't write the script, so I have a collaborator who writes the script of the shows I work on. It's a different collaborator for each project. It's not just person over and over. Um, I'll write the music and the lyrics. Um, sometimes we collaborate on the lyrics too, but I always, uh, am writing all of the music and then depending on the, uh, the show it's, I'm either writing all of the music and all of the lyrics or we're collaborating on the lyrics. Um, you know, the world of theater is a lot more finicky than the world of making records because... You know, when you're making records, like you make a record and you put it out, and it's it's a lot more straightforward. <laughs>
1: yeah, um, it's funny because when we when when we were working together back in 2013 on Fiction, it was like I it was my first time in that world or experiencing anything quite right. like that, and it was it was just so so different. And um, yeah. yeah, and I t- I I get that. I totally get that that it's finicky. You have a lot of people that a lot of moving parts, a lot of people you're relying on for things to happen. And plus you have, you have the artistic side, but the, sh- the actual show and, and, uh, and the art on, on top of it. And it's just so tricky and, um, and, uh, tough. Well, it's a tough when you,
2: when you add in the extra layer of, you know, um, that you have, Producers, you know, Mm -hmm. other basically, other people involved in some capacity with what you are, what you're creating. You're not the sole person with a say. So, (laughs) Uh, yeah, it's a lot more complicated. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, I think fiction. Fiction is a very good example of having a lot of cooks in the kitchen Mm. before you could get any work done. It's not necessarily a criticism. It's just the reality of the theater industry. Um, And I guess maybe that's what I meant when I was saying earlier, you know, there are, you know, there are some ways of like, well, this is how the industry works. You create a show, you get producers, they go find the funding, and then you go do the show. Like, that's a very simplified way of how it works.
3: <laughs> right.
2: Because, um, you know, I don't know, 99.9% of the time, people cannot afford to produce their own shows, you know?
1: Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot uh, goes into it.
2: Physically, I mean, monetarily produce their own shows. So Right, right. So, you know, it's it's its own uh it's its own world. I mean, for me, there's a there's a couple of shows that I'm working on that I think absolutely have a place on a Broadway stage. And then there are a couple of shows that I'm working on where like we from the get-go are like, this doesn't belong on a Broadway stage. This is like gonna be in like some kind of maybe even weird immersive stage experience or an off-Broadway experience or whatever it is depending on what it is. So, and I, I do think sp- specific to the world of theater, I think it's very helpful if you can know that Yeah. from, yeah. from the get go. I think it also like sets a good expectation for, for you as the creative person. Cause I think if you're just, I mean, I don't really know cause I'm just too much of a realist, but I just got, I just have to imagine if you're working on stuff the whole time and just Assuming that it all should be a Broadway show, I don't know that that's a healthy thing to do. <laughs> no, I can't. I can't imagine it is. Well, but saying, I think people so- do that. I, unfortunately, I do think some people do that, and maybe that's why they certain things go down the way they do, and then they stop creating and they don't keep going. And you know, I mean, I think that's, in my opinion, I think that's the hardest thing about the industry. Period. Is that whatever part of the industry you're in you know it's it's very hard to be objective with yourself and say I don't think this is going to be as successful as this. Yeah. But I still think it deserves a place in the world or whatever. And that's not to say, you know, have a glass half empty. But right. I do I do wonder sometimes about saving ourselves heartbreak sometimes if we build things up too much. And I think sometimes that's also because, especially in the world of theater, I've worked on a few projects that ultimately were really beautiful and amazing and, and probably should have had much more of a life than they did. Mm. Um, and there, there in, in all, in each of those cases, there was definitely something that got in the way. Um, whatever that was, it was, it was different in each scenario. You know, and then when I revisit some of those people after time has passed and ask them how they feel and this and that, it's like the disappointment I don't think ever goes away, actually. It's kind of like a really horrible breakup or a death. You know, it's like over time you learn to deal with it because it's the reality,
3: Mm -hmm.
2: but um, it doesn't, but it never really goes away yeah
1: an interesting thing that that i'd always heard about this particular topic is and i try to stay as even keel as i possibly can when things are popping up or or things are looking like they're gonna go well or whatever but it's like no like falling in love with the journey of what you're doing and the process of what you're doing rather than putting all your eggs in the basket and just like setting it all up just to tumble down like a house of cards you know it it's just um you know like you said 85 percent uh, Failure rate, basically, in in uh, Broadway, and then it's the same way in music. You know, a lot of things just go, get put out. You think they're cool, and and they might not be, and and then they don't do anything, and then you you have move to know on. to yeah, you have to know to put your you head have down to move
2: on, even if you don't want to move on. I mean, you think about the music industry like this. I'm this is also I'm gonna throw out a just a flat number, yeah. But let's say. Between the four major or the three major record labels now, Warner, Universal and Sony, which un- encompass most of the major label world. Um, let's see, they, let's say between the three of them, they sign a hundred acts a year. It's probably a lot more than that, but let's just call it a hundred acts. And out of those hundred acts, like five of those acts are gonna be massively successful to the point of actually being able to move on to, to be a real self-sustaining thing. Right. And then what happened? And then, and then let's say maybe 15 of those, 15 out of the rest of the 95 that are left out of those five are gonna be varying degrees of success to really to also be able to continue to go on to have another career, whether right. that's at a different record company or they go into the corporate side or they go just into songwriting or music supervision or composer, whatever it is. Right, like a lot of those bands day.
1: get dropped and then ultimately end up right. uh, end up like being indie and then kind of creating their own ecosystem.
2: Right. So let's say 15 of the 95 that are left go on and do something like that. And then let's say 20 out of whatever's left out of that go on to some version of still doing something music related, but not really in the industry at all.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Right. And then whatever's left out of that is people do who something else. walk away After they get dropped from their record deal forever. You know, when you look at the numbers like that, it is a little depressing,
1: which is truly amazing, because if you're an artist that gets signed like you would think like I think this like I've I've never I've always been, you know, like like a drummer and collaborative songwriter and stuff like that. But like I see these people that get signed and there there's so much talent in them. And there's so much skill and, and, and stuff. It's just, it really depends on the person. It really, really depends. Well, I mean, or you look do. at all
2: these people who've won, you know, the voice or American idol, right? They're great singers and some of them are great songwriters too. You mm-hmm. know, I, mean, I don't, I don't know that there's any fucking rhyme or reason to any of it. I know that sounds fucked up, but you know, I, I don't know that there's any rhyme or reason to any of it. You know, the thing I can say is, unfortunately if you have enough money to market yourself you will make it you yeah. actually will because it's really exposure at the end of the day you right. know it's monetization and exposure and if you have the ability to expose yourself yeah you will be you will be more successful that is the literal reality right. and you know There's a lot of different ways you can do that nowadays that we have social media and all of this other stuff. But I mean, even still, there's so much content everywhere. How do you, it's it's so hard. And I guess, you know, when you look at the numbers and you look at how difficult it is to break through, that's why for me, and when I say breakthrough, I don't even necessarily mean becoming the biggest fucking star in the world. I'm saying being able to build a meaningful following in any capacity. Right. Um, to still be able to do it as a job kind of thing. Um, it is m- miraculous. Because it is. Totally. of the amount of volume at which people are releasing and producing and creating these days because of how the industry has changed. Because Literally forever and ever, um, we have lived in a world, we lived in a world specifically in the music industry where people could, people were at the behest of the industry, the music business the record companies, you know, if you weren't signed, you didn't really have another way to release your music to to truly reach people. Right, You could like a local artist, but, you know, they controlled everything back then, the radio, the companies, the record stores, everything was controlled. It was a different world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we don't live in that world anymore. So people have the ability to, breakthrough. And, you know, I guess that's why anytime I I teach a masterclass or I, you know, I do any of those kinds of things and people always ask me, you know, what is the the best advice that I can give? You know, the, the only thing I'll say, the, the things I say are two things. If you actually want to do this, you have to 100% commit yourself to it. You cannot be one foot in and one foot out because it won't happen. The mm-hmm. universe, it just won't happen. The universe is doesn't work that way because unless you're, you have to really put yourself into it and you have to really, you have to be the first person who believes because if you do not, no one else is going to get on the bandwagon. It just right. won't happen. Right. And,
1: and people catch on to that. You know, I know people that have have not gotten gigs or, or lost out on gigs because the other people knew that they weren't 100% committed. Right. You know?
2: And you know, and then the other thing that I say is, if you want to do this, you just have to do it. Mm-hmm. If you actually want to do it, it's going to be incredibly difficult. It is going to challenge every part of your life. You are going to miss holidays and birthdays and fun and things and maybe births.
3: You,
2: yeah, you <laughs> will be doing things you never thought you would be doing in good and bad ways, right? Because of the sacrifices that it takes to do it. But
1: well, now that you have everyone depressed, yeah. um, <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: no. But what are some of the like the? I'm trying to think of like the optimistic side of that because.
2: Well, I mean, I, I certainly don't mean if you want to do it, go do it. I don't mean that in a negative way at all. I just no, mean like, no, no, that's not, you know, that's not like that. if you're going to do it, you just have to do it. No one's going right. to do it for you. I exactly. mean, that's the actual fucking reality. Right. Not, not, not a single, not even if you have the greatest management or the greatest agent or the greatest whatever, none of it matters. Unless you're going to show up and do the work, nothing will happen. And- if you're a person that really wants to commit to it, that's amazing. I mean, because it is an extraordinary amount of work and, it, and an extraordinary amount of sacrifice. And I have lived that life. I still live that life yeah. in so many ways, even after all of the miraculous success that I've had. And what I will say to anyone who wants to do it is it's worth it. If you actually want to do this for real and you bear down and you stick with it and you do the work and you show up every day and you're a fucking decent human being and you're not an asshole and you do the work and you put in your 10,000 hours, the reward is tremendous. It really is. Because beyond any accolades or whatever, being able to live a purely creative life is amazing. Yeah. It really is. And something that I have never and will never take for granted, not a single day, because it to me truly, again, is a miracle that I've gotten to live the life that I've lived within this industry. It every day feels like a humongous blessing, but that didn't come without some serious blood, sweat, and tears.
1: Wasn't easy.
2: And it was not easy and it still isn't easy right. because it's an ever-changing world and an ever-changing industry. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, again, it's like, but, but I do think sometimes it seems easier than it is. And what I see happen to people sometimes is they go, Oh, I just thought this was going to be easier and I can't do this anymore. Yeah. And yeah. it's usually right at that moment when you're about to give up, if you can hang in a little bit longer. Push
1: a little bit harder.
2: But a lot of people don't. A lot of some people can't. Right. No. Some people do really reach the end of of what of, of their bandwidth. And also there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with it either way. But as a person who has lived through, you know, certainly at least five lives in the industry. You know, I I can say as living proof, you know, I am like the living proof of if you just fucking bear down and do the work.
1: Keep going. Um, Grind something
2: it out. will happen. Because I, I, I think that's the other thing is that, you know, I think the other thing that can happen to each and every one of us is we get into the headspace that's like, oh, well, I thought this was going to be like this or like that, you know. And um, and then when it doesn't always pan out exactly, exactly, specifically like you thought it was going to pan out, I think that's also what can kind of kill the dream.
1: And then comparing yourself to other people and saying like, "Oh, I, well, I don't sound like that, or I don't have what that person has, or you know, that kind of thing" is it can be devastating for, oh,
2: for dreams. I mean, it's it's. I think any kind of any kind of thing like that ends up being really difficult because, you know, there are a lot of people that might have you know all the money in the world and all of this and all of that kind of thing. But yeah. They're not happy, and you know they maybe don't have emotionally or mentally what what someone else might have who may not have as much money or fame or whatever, but maybe they're more you know emotionally. Mentally secure. Maybe they have a g- great relationships around them that this other person doesn't have. You know, it's like it's so hard to compare ourselves to anyone else around us because nobody really has any idea what's going on with them. No,
3: else,
1: no, you know? nobody.
2: <laughs> and I think especially in the creative industry, which you know, it's in a strange time right now because it 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 wants to be. Uh, it wants to be focused on taking care of mental health, but it still doesn't quite go (laughs) the distance.
1: It doesn't go all the way there for sure. It
2: still doesn't quite meet the mark. And so I think especially in that way, I think it's, you know, more than ever, I think it's important for people not to compare themselves to anyone else and to stay their path and keep doing what they're doing because, you know, now more than ever, it's the best time to be you, whoever you are, because that's all you can be anyway. Right. You know, And that's, you know, that's the other thing is, yeah, I, I certainly am not going to be everybody's cup of tea. And that's fine. I actually don't care. Um, it, the amount of time, especially when I was younger, trying to understand what it really meant what what the difference in really what the difference meant in when you really are just trying to be yourself and when that really is what you're putting forward instead of trying to put forward what you think everybody else wants to see mm.
3: you here there's yeah.
2: a huge difference in doing that and then just doing you right and that's hard you know, to find
1: that's hard that's hard very, for people to do
2: but it's also very hard to do it's very hard to do because ultimately you have to be vulnerable we you know you have to put yourself out there in a way that you know even when people may not like something it 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 will sting but you have to figure out how you're gonna deal with that so you know it's many levels I have to I have to go
1: I actually have to go too that's perfect <laughs> well lolo this was yeah. a pleasure same all right see ya
2: bye
3: They told you to buy a house But if you buy a house Then you need a family If you have a family Better have a degree To get a job I know a lot of people With a lot of those things With a lot of problems But they still tell me That's what'll make me happy But they don't know What makes me Where's saying- my-